Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Baseball Never Sleeps podcast. This is episode number 16. This is Nick Lancioni. Alongside me, as always, Simon Farber. And Simon, we had a very special guest today, Paul Canerco, White Sox legend. This was really a special interview for the both of us. Yeah, growing up White Sox fans, as you guys know, this was just, it kind of felt like a dream come true just to hear him speaking with us and taking some time out of his day. We touched on his upbringing in baseball, the 2005 World Series, obviously, and his coaching now. Um, And he's just had a really fascinating life. He didn't stay on the Hall of Fame ballot over the last year, but he definitely had one of those careers that will be remembered in Chicago and in the world of baseball for a very long time. This really was a dream come true for the both of us. Let's not waste any time and let's get to the interview. This is another episode of the Baseball Never Sleeps podcast. Simon and I are very happy today to welcome on White Sox legend, Paul Canerco. Paul, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, appreciate you having me on. So, Paul, it's been a, an odd spring, but how are you keeping busy during this quarantine situation in your home? Well, you know, I got three kids, so, I mean, that, uh, that in itself kind of, uh, you know, kind of shapes the day for you every day. I mean, between <laughs> having to feed them and schoolwork and, and uh, you know, all, all that kind of stuff, it, uh, it actually remarkably fills up pretty fast. So, um, you know, I think <laughs> we're in, I'm in Arizona right now, so hopefully... I think we're on the tail end of it, at least getting back to some normalcy here. So, you know, it's been it's been odd, as you said. So we're just trying to get through it like everybody else. And, uh, you know, um, it, it's it's been a, just a very crazy time in, in history. So it's, uh, I'm sure everybody feels the same way. We're just trying to get on the other side of it, you know. Now, flipping over to the baseball page, something that a lot of people might not know back in your high school days is that you were actually ranked the number one catcher in the nation during your senior year of high school, and you put up phenomenal numbers. What can you tell us about your senior year? It was filled with a lot of success, and what can you tell us about uh, your time at the catcher position? Well, um, you know, I pretty much caught my whole life up until I was about 20. I started, you know, I think somewhere like around 10 or 11, I just started catching for some reason and I never really looked back, never really played another position. So I, you know, I was always just a catcher and, um, you know, I think most kids, um, if given the opportunity or at least at some point during their, you know, young times in, in learning to play the game, 10, 11, 12, they should everybody should try to catch a little bit because I think it gives you a different perspective of the game. And I think it makes you a better hitter because you you have some things that you learned back there. And um, yeah, so I was always a catcher and uh, I wasn't overly good back there. I mean, I think I had some, um, you know, I think I was a good high school catcher, but I think uh, looking back on it, anybody that had a trained eye would probably have known, okay, this guy's going to move to first or he's going to move to third. Uh, He's probably not a catcher, but I was obviously good enough to be a good high school catcher. And, um, you know, had a good senior year. We had a great team and, and, uh, you know, anytime you go out with the state championship and, and, you know, you can't beat that as a high school senior. So it was, um, it was a great year and, um, you know, kind of parlayed it into getting drafted and, and, you know, the rest from there is uh, history, you know? Yeah. You mentioned getting drafted. You were a first rounder in 1994. You bypassed a chance to play at Arizona state, but, you know, getting drafted in the first round, what was your mindset at this stage in your career, did you have big league expectations already? Uh, oh yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think somewhere probably in my middle, you know, I think somewhere in, in um, 
I don't know, maybe after my sophomore year in high school, um, you know, uh, when you start to play in some more national type tournaments with, with prospects, quote unquote, all around, and you kind of see that you belong in that group. I think up until that point, you just kind of never know. You know, I think uh, you're always kind of waiting for the shoot to drop, and it's one thing kind of the best kids from your area or one of your best kids from the area. But you're always told that there's, you know, such a big big group out there, a big world out there that, uh, you know, that it's unrealistic to think that. But I think once you get on, like, the national stage and you start playing against some people and then start seeing some names that you've read and, and, and realize that, you know, you're just as good as them or you do some things better than them, but they do some things better than you, but you kind of belong – you know, I think from that point, you start to kind of form the opinion that, uh, well, you know, someone's got to make it to the big leagues. Why not me, you know? And that big stage did end up coming in when you made your MLB debut in 1997 at Dodger Stadium. You hit a pinch hit single. What do you remember about this environment? It had to be pretty cool, especially playing in that iconic stadium. Yeah, I mean, I just remember I got down, I believe, 0-2 in the count very quick, and I think maybe I took a pitch to go to 1-2, but I was behind right away, and I just kind of, you know, I was facing a left-handed pitcher, and I just uh, had a feeling he might go away and just kind of dove out there and hit a line drive to right, uh, which certainly was not my calling card really at any time during my career, but uh, (laughs) back then, so I just kind of... Uh, you know, you have so much adrenaline. I mean, there's different adrenaline you have as you play the game, whether it be, you know, opening day adrenaline, playoff baseball adrenaline. Um, but certainly I don't think anything compares to your first, you know, game adrenaline when you're up there. Um, so you see that happen a lot where guys, you know, in their first at bat or first couple of bats, I mean, they're hitting homers, they're hitting balls further or throwing harder or whatever it might be. And it kind of levels off, but there's nothing really that uh, kind of prepares you as many minor league games as you play and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, it, nothing really prepares you for that first uh, at bat, that first start as a pitcher, whatever it might be. And, and you know, you, you, it's just it's just a different feeling that you've ever had playing the game. You know. Yeah, it sounds kind of silly to say after thousands of at bats, but uh, do you think that first at bat, just getting a base hit, kind of loosened you up and and kind of just put you back in the spot uh, that you belonged in the major leagues? Well, I would. I think I thought that that was probably a mistake because uh, <laughs> I think I wound up hitting about 180 for my next like 200 at bats. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think it was probably uh, you know I, I don't think I. People will say that uh, I think it's a little different nowadays because everybody's younger and I think it's easier to kind of feel comfortable. But at least when I was coming up and probably several years before that, you know, for the many years before that, they would always say that you know you needed about two to three years in the big leagues to kind of feel comfortable and feel like yourself. And I would say that that was about right for me. You know, it took all of, um, I don't know, probably about at least 500 at bats to where I kind of felt like the things I was doing and the decisions I was making, the swings I was taking were the swings I was taking in the minor leagues. You know, it just, it's a, it was a different animal. There was a lot of older players, a lot of more veteran pitchers and, veteran teams and it was just a different environment so it took a while um, for most people to feel comfortable i think nowadays um that the rosters are so much younger and people are breaking in so much younger and there's so much more so much less older guys that you put all that together and it's um you can kind of get the natural talent and kind of get guys feeling comfortable in their early 20s 21 22 they feel like they belong and um you know they can kind of perform they're going to get out of their talent very much. Uh, they're going to get it out quicker um, because of the environment they're in, you know? 
Yeah, that three-year window you mentioned pretty much lines up with your own career, and you were dealt twice in a pretty short span from the Dodgers to the Reds and then to the Reds, uh, from the Reds to Chicago. How difficult is that for a young player to just have to start over with a new franchise? What's the toughest part of adjusting to a brand-new clubhouse? Um, I think it's just the, uh, the – I mean, I think you know going into professional baseball that um, – you know, that playing with one team for a long time or, or staying with one team and never getting traded or anything like that happen is, uh, is rare. So you kind of know that going in. I think um, as a young player, um, I think it depends on when it happens. If it happens when you're in the low-level minor leagues and you're part of a trade and all that, it doesn't affect you too much. You kind of move on to the next group and you keep going. If you're older and you've been in the big leagues a long time, uh, you certainly know by then um, what the game is and how, how it all is, and you're kind of more sure of yourself, I think, when you're getting traded rate as a triple-A fringe big league guy and you haven't really had a lot of success and you've actually struggled a lot, I think the trades kind of can be – they can give you a bunch of doubt uh, to – as if to say, you know, is this the end of the road here? Like I dominated A-ball, double-A, triple-A, and am I just reaching the peak here and I, I can't go any further because I'm trying it with this team, it's not working. I'm trying it with this team, it's not working. Especially if you're a one-dimensional – kind of player like I was where pretty much all the eggs were in one basket with the hitting. Um, you, know, you definitely have some doubts because, you know, you, they always tell you if you get traded, um, you can't look at it like someone didn't want you. You have to look at it from the angle that someone is wanting you. Uh, but it's very hard to do that because all you see is that someone is perfectly fine with, you know, letting you walk away and go away. So definitely can add a little, a lot of doubt. And then on top of it, you're failing on the field. Uh, it's a tough thing to get through, but if you do get through it, um, then you kind of use it as, uh, I guess, fuel to, uh, uh, you know, go out and perform and have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder, and uh, you can kind of carry that for a long time, you know. The adjustments seem to go pretty smooth, specifically looking at the 2000 season with the White Sox. You guys end up clinching the division title, and everybody was really clicking. But looking back, I, I noticed a story during that summer that, you and your teammates took a behind-scenes tour of the White House, and your teammates actually introduced you to the cab driver as Senator Canerco. Is this true, and did you play along with this? <laughs> Jeez, that's uh, jogging back the memories. Um, well, I'll tell you, that team, when I got traded there uh, before 99, um, the best part about that team was, you know, talk about being comfortable in the environment. Pretty much everybody on a team uh, at least a large part of the team was um, kind of in the same boat. Younger player, early to mid twenties, hadn't really established themselves. So it was a real fun team. Uh, we all we had a lot of good hitters. So I think everybody kind of fed off each other, some healthy competition amongst everybody, but it was just easy to feel comfortable. And we just had a lot of fun. It probably resembled more of a college team um, than it did a professional team. And um Although I don't remember the exact uh, thing that you're quoting or, or referencing, <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me at all that that happened because it was just a very tight knit unit there for a couple of years, and it was uh, it was just a fun team, and we had just a lot of good friends, and just it was fun to come to the park every day, you know. So you've been kind of a constant through a bunch of different players that came through Chicago for 10 to 15 years. You and I guess Mark Burley as well. You guys were mainstays. When did you start to develop into more of a clubhouse leader and what type of leadership style did you go with to try to get the most out of the team? Um, well, I think I'll answer the second part first. I think uh, it's, I was always more 
by example, you know, not so much uh, yelling or, or uh, vocal, um, showing up early, leaving late, uh, getting to work in, trying to stay very consistent in my routines every day um, throughout the season. I think that's what most guys, because that's the hardest thing about, I think, the season is, uh, you know, everybody's got the talent to play there. Um, that's that's evident. But I think the season itself, the amount of games that a big league player plays, that in itself, just getting through the schedule is probably the number one thing that is, breaks people down and that they have a hard time with. They just can't, they don't have the stamina to do it. So um, just being able to show up every day, have the same routines, um, get ready the same way every day from, you know, 6.30 on to prepare for the game. During the game, um, you know, there's no funny business. You know, you're out there performing and, and delivering as best you can and not really – you have fun, but it's, it, you have a job to do and you have the seriousness of it that, um, you know, that uh, you're getting paid a lot of money. There's a lot of fans that come and see you play, that there's no um, taking a day off type of things. If, if you do that every day, I think people watch that and that, that's how you can become a leader. Um, I think as I got older, you know, like, you know, definitely into my thirties and all that, and you are clearly older, 10 years older, 12 years older than some guys on the team. You know, at that point, I think you, um, you can pull people aside and, and say, Hey, you know, like that ball you hit, you ran, you know, you didn't run that out or you didn't do this or, you need to get better here. And you kind of, you kind of a little bit more big brother, father figure type. Um, but I think I probably waited a long time to get there on that just because I think if you go there early, it can kind of backfire on you. And, uh, but I think generally speaking, you know, usually when you have about six, seven years in, that's kind of when, or at least it used to be, I think now they refer to people as veterans with three years in. <laughs> so I, <laughs> yeah. everything sped up a little bit. Um, but, you know, I was told when I first got to the big leagues with the Dodgers, you know, you don't say, you don't open your mouth for the next six years. So that was, you know, kind of my introduction to it. Um, but again, at the end of the day, in any workplace, in any business, the best thing you can do is lead by example, um, day in and day out for a long time. Um, that there's, there's just no substitute for that. No words can substitute. You mentioned that big brother and father figure type of stature. Was there a player that you can specifically point out that you'd say you, you helped out a lot along the way, or was there someone that you really took under your wing that you recall? Um, I mean, I think I got close to uh, Gordon Beckham came up around 09, I think it was. So I'd already been there almost 10 years. And um, not so much from the playing aspect, just um, – because he's a totally different player, you know, infielder, middle infielder, um, top of the lineup type of guy. Um, but just the big league, you know, experience in the life and how to navigate your way kind of through that. He's a smart kid and, you know, had gone to a major college. It was a high pick and uh, the pressures that come with that, um, you know, it, it was those types of things I could relate to. But I, I think the answer to that question is probably – yeah, I think back to different guys at different moments where it might have been specifically about one thing hitting that I know, hey, you know, I think I helped him here. No, no other part of his game or life, but hitting, uh, there could have been another guy where um, it could have been something else just about how to conduct yourself in the clubhouse um, or some other little piece of the equation. And I think that's all you try to do. Uh, but Gordon would probably be the guy that I spent the most time with, you know, on the most things and, um you know, he wound up not being in Chicago and he kind of bounced around a couple of different places. But, you know, at the end of the day, he still had a really good career and 
still trying to have a good career if they can get back on the field. So just a great human being, good kid, um, and, and I was always looking out for him. So there were a lot of things that you did uh, in your career that were really impressive, but what makes you a legend in the city of Chicago is 2005. And just going back, starting with the ALCS, with the pitching staff throwing four consecutive complete games, how incredible was that seeing that from being at first base? I mean, that'll probably never be done again, especially with the way pitchers are treated. Yeah, I mean, I think at the time we knew it was kind of special. I mean, we knew we had a good pitching staff, and I mean, our goal was to just get them a few runs to work with every day and let them go. And um, the bullpen was really good on top of it. So even if the starters didn't have their best night, you know, we kind of had a bullpen coming behind them that was really strong too. So, but most of the nights the starters were really good, and we knew uh, in that postseason that yeah, these guys that it was special then, but I don't know if you know how special until you obviously get away from it. And then the game, the way it's evolved, you know, what happened then, um, even though it's only 15 years ago, you know, in miles will be 75 years ago, the way, you know, the difference is in terms of how uses and um, the way guys are kind of deployed out there now um, doesn't mean one way is better or worse. It's just kind of a different mindset, a different way. And um, yeah, it was a great team. And, you know, I think um, most of the guys on that team, really everybody on that team, you know, is remembered obviously for it. And um, I think unless you're just a superstar of superstars where, you know, you're, you know, Mike Trout, let's say, where it would be nice to get him in the playoffs. It'd be nice to win him a World Series. But, you know, 20 years from now, it's not going to change its thing if he never does because he's that good. I think for the most of the rest of the people, for us, um, that aren't that type of player, that were good players, you know, good to great or whatever description might be, you know, how you perform in the postseason and actually being able to kind of like bring one of those home, you know, can really make how people think of you the rest of your career, um, you know, really kind of solidify that. So we were all kind of conscious of that. I know I was because you don't get many cracks at it, if any. And um, it was nice to be able to bring it home because, you know, once you do it, um, you know, they can never take it away from you. And it's kind of installed, you know. Your performance in the postseason definitely went unnoticed, specifically in game two. In game two, and I'm sure you've talked about it many times, but that grand slam, take us through that at bat, what you were feeling rounding the bases, because that had to be one of the most special moments in your career. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, that was a big moment. It was a big hit in the game. And, um, you know, I don't remember, I remember hitting it. I remember kind of walking up to the plate. I remember kind of, I can still remember swinging the bat and kind of making contact. I don't remember too much about going around the bases or anything like that. I don't remember about dugout. I think there was two outs. I'm pretty sure there were. And it was a quick out after me. Uh, so before we knew it, we were back out in the field. And um, so I kind of remember hitting it and I kind of remember being back out at first base and, the crowd just being, it was a bad night in terms of weather, a lot of rain. It was like sleet, cold. And um, just the crowd was almost like a, almost out of like a concert, like a music concert or something like that. It was very loud, very, just kind of a wave of people jumping up and down for about a good, you know, five, six, seven minutes after it. Um, and I had played a lot of games in that stadium. And I think that was my, what, sixth year with the team. And I played probably upwards of 500 home games and, uh, opening days and cup games and all different big games. I'd never seen the stadium that, you know, kind of electric. So, and then a couple of few innings later when Scotty hit the walk off one night, it was like, it did it again. So it was, it was a crazy night. I, we flew to Houston after that game and 
I'm not even sure. We had an off day the next day. I don't even. I think I don't. Not sure. I even went to sleep in terms of uh, you know we're so wired. <laughs> I can't. You know. Do you ever? I know you're retired comfortably now, but do you ever just sit around and and miss the days when you would hear thirty, forty thousand people cheering for you and and making a bunch of noise while you're playing? Um, I you know not not too much. I, I seem to have a pretty. Uh, uh, you know, my, my thing was I uh, had a lot of boxes to check off during my career in terms of what I wanted to do, hopes that I would get, you know, uh, like a World Series or, you know, just different things. And I feel like I checked off all those boxes and I kind of walked away from the game very satisfied. But I was not satisfied any day during my career all the way up until the end. But I think when it ended, I felt satisfied. So I don't I don't tend to look at it, um, uh, you know, um, that I look back on it and, and wish I could go back. Um, I looked like I kind of graduated on to the next thing and was lucky enough to accomplish everything while I was, uh, you know, doing it. And I, I don't, uh, you know, life goes on and um, I had my time, which was a great time. And, and uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it can be dangerous for a, an ex player to constantly relive the old memories because I think you have to move on. And it's, it's a small, they always tell you when you're playing that you're going to be an ex player a heck of a lot longer than you're going to be a player. And that's even true if you have a 20 year career. So um, you got to be careful, uh, you know, kind of relive in the old times, but certainly, you know, talking about it here and there. And, and um, you know, again, they can't take it away from you. So it, it is fun. It is a part of who I am. And um, now I kind of coach kids and try to pass it on to them. And it's all about uh, being as little, you know, not being selfish with it at all and just trying to pass on as much knowledge as I can, whether it's my own kid or one of his teammates or whoever. Um, that's that's kind of my approach with it. It was really good to me. The game was, and uh, now it's time to kind of like pass that on to somebody else. I kind of had my day in the sun, you know. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned coaching because we were just about to go there next. The one thing I'm wondering is you're obviously coaching. I believe it's 11. You, um, how do you balance trying not to overwhelm kids with too many big league skills at the same time as you're giving them really valuable advice? Yeah, it definitely is a learning. Uh, you know, I've been coaching kids now for almost three years and I'm much better at now than at the beginning. Uh, if I could go back, I probably would have helped a lot more. Um, you know, if I go back three years ago, I would have been a better coach from what I know now uh, because I never work with kids. I mean, even to this day, I would feel much more comfortable by walking into a big league clubhouse and having to work with those guys than I do a little year old kid because you know, you know what they can kind of handle and what they need to know and, they're at the level that they have to know it. Whereas with a kid, you know, you, it's kind of a marathon. You're trying to get them into high school to be a, a good player. Um, every kid's a little bit further down the road or not as far down the road at this age. It doesn't mean that they're going to be great or bad because everybody kind of started at a different time and you kind of just don't know. And um, you just, it's a little trial and error. You know, I think that I try to toe the line, like I tell our parents is that, I definitely try to push the envelope with some of the stuff and try to get these kids a little bit more advanced because if I'm not going to do that, then why don't, you know, you have some other just regular dad coach them. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying to offer something to them that's going to make them better. Um, so I, but I definitely have to go back, break and gas pedal in terms of sometimes I can tell where I'm really getting in with a kid and it's good. And then I might go just a step further far and say, well, what about this? <laughs> do this. And I realize, okay. <laughs> He's looking at me like I have three heads. I got to back off here, and uh, you, you know, kind of, kind of just, 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 you know, throttle it down for a little bit in terms of 
uh, you know, talking about maybe this type of uh, maneuver with their swing or, you know, a certain mechanic or whatever. whatever it could be infield. It could be a part of the game on, um, you know, uh, hey, have you ever thought about when you catch this ball here, you got to be ready for this play because what about this play? And, you know, because if this guy does this and you realize you're starting to lose him. Uh, but, again, I think the, uh, you know, you try to build stuff with them, but you try to you try to definitely if, – if, if I'm not coaching, I'm trying to give them an edge and help them by being their coach. I think that's what the parents we have of our kids are looking for. So I try to push it as much as I can because I do want to see them get better. And certainly the mental part, you know, I think that's the, the thing I want. I don't know talent-wise, especially at 11, they have, their bodies haven't changed and you don't know what's going to happen with them. But I want all of our kids when they're 14 or 15 to have a better baseball IQ than the kids around them, you know. I know you talked about checking off those boxes during your, your career, and you were pretty satisfied with closing that chapter, and you're pretty comfortable coaching 11U now, but do you think you see yourself maybe down the line coaching in the MLB at some capacity at all in the future? Um, you know, I, I never say never, um, but I can't, I can't see. I don't see myself in a uniform coaching um, that doesn't mean it won't happen. I think for me, the reason why I don't see it is probably because, you know, my kids are at ages right now, 14, 11, and 8, where I just can't get past that in terms of trying to visualize the future. I want to see them grow up. And I'm, I was fortunate enough to play, uh, you know, for a long time to where I don't have to rush out and get a job or, or need the job. Um, so for me, anything that would take me away from seeing my kids grow up or be at their graduation or, or, or miss a game, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't it doesn't add up. Um, and I do love the game. I kind of get an outlet coaching these kids. I work with some other kids, high school kids, and I do get to touch, you know, and kind of work with some older kids, which kind of gives me a little bit more of a fix than the young ones. Um, but I just, you know, until my kids get older, I think I, I can't even really uh, visualize it or, or see it. So who knows? Maybe that answer might change down the road, but, um, it just hasn't hit me. Um, but I don't feel unhappy that I'm not doing it. So I, I you know, I kind of just go day by day with it. And, uh, maybe I'll wake up, you know, a year from now and say, really, I really need this. I really need to go and kind of, you know, feel, fill this need, but it doesn't appear that it's close. So let's, let's put it that way. Looking outside of coaching, I noticed you got to experience the broadcast booth one game with Hawk Harrelson during his farewell tour. What can you tell us about your relationship with Hawk and just any funny stories you had with him? Well, I mean, there's a, you could do many, many podcasts on the, uh, the days with Hawk, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's just great, a great guy. I mean, just kind of a legend when you really look back at his life and you look at all the different things that he's done and was good at, um, whether it be baseball player, golfer, broadcaster, GM of a team. Um, you know, he's had a very colorful life. And um, the people he's met and the situations he's been in, um, it's just, like, very, like, unique. And so the conversations we would have would always kind of revolve around history of those types of things. Like, tell me about this guy. Like, I know you hung out with him. How, what was he like? You know, like, what? and so – just stuff you'd want to know about different, uh, you know, athletes of the past and players of the past. But, you know, when I did the game with him, you know, at that point, I think he was 73. I don't even know how old he was. It was a year or two ago. And um, what struck me was just how hard he was still working all the way up until the end. He knew he was retiring. I mean, he was there at 
you know, five hours before a game and he's going over the lineups and he's going over like, you know, statistics and he has a sheet of paper that probably has somewhere in the vicinity of like, I don't know, 75 different kind of notes on it. And he's like, I make these out before every game. I know I'm only going to use about 10 or 12 of these as the game goes on. I'm ready depending on how the game goes and the situations that happen and the hitting or the pitching or whatever happens out here. I have all these queued up and I do this every day. Wow. Thinking like, wow, this is crazy. Like, you know, like he, and he goes, I do it every day. That way I'm prepared. That way I don't miss. If something comes up that takes a, you know, a fork in the road this way, I have information and he does it all handwritten. It was all handwritten on a piece of paper front and back. And I was just kind of amazed by that. Cause I just figured by that age and that experience, you just kind of wing it, you know? And, um, it was, it was definitely an eye-opener, and it's not something I need broadcasting or that stuff. It's not something that is another thing that I want to do and all that. But after seeing what he did and, and, and how hard it was to do, I was up there for one game, and I'm sure it gets easier the more you do it. But um, it, it was like, wow, like, this isn't for me either because like, this is way too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hawk's career was obviously very successful, and he had a lot of memories. But we, we also know that you had a lot of memories after watching you, Simon and I both being White Sox fans. And we're going to cap off this podcast with both of our favorite moments from your career. I'll, I'll start. Back in 2010, you were facing the Minnesota Twins. And I'm sure you remember this game. Carl Pavano ended up drilling you in the jaw. And at your very next at-bat, you took him to deep left for a solo home run. How were you able to hold back your anger and just not rip this guy's head off and charge the mound? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, um, first of all, you say, as a player, you know, and you, if you play it for a long time, you know the difference between when the pitch gets away from somebody or if it's intentional. And I knew by the way it looked and everything, it just got away from them. It was not a intentional type thing. So I think that kind of, you just know it inside of you and you kind of just have a, um, you just know. And so that, that right away kind of diffuses things in terms of your, feelings towards the pitcher who threw it um but, you know nonetheless it hurt um it hurt off the you know, <laughs> but the good news is it didn't hit me you know um i had one a couple years ago that uh, a couple years later that hit me in the eye or close to my eye and that one hurt less but my eye swell, swelled up so much i couldn't see so i think as a player you're always taught at least i was you know if you can you you can it's it's, it's the difference between being hurt and being injured and um it hurt but I realized, okay, regardless of what it looks like, I can still see the rest of my body functions. And yeah, there is that little bit of uh, if you get knocked down, you get back up. And I just was like, I'm going to keep playing. Um, and that was it. We were kind of in the hunt somewhat for a division. And, you know, again, that goes back, I guess, to the leadership things of if I walk off the field right now, I'm kind of quitting because I know I can play. So you play. And um, that was it. And, and to his credit, you know, I had faced him a lot, and I'm not sure I ever got a, as good of a pitch to hit the next at bat. <laughs> so I think it was kind of one of those things like, hey, that pitch got away from me. Here's one, see what you can do with it. And he probably was going to go and pitch better after that, but I hit the first one. And, and it was just, it was kind of done right by him, by me. I didn't look at him, I didn't look at him after I hit it. Uh, God knows what would have happened today if that same situation happened in terms of the hitter. He probably would have. <laughs> You know, it would have taken him an hour to get around the bases. He would have stared at him. He would have done all those different things. But <laughs> I just felt like two wrongs don't make a right. You know, you don't want to – I'm not looking to disrespect him. And then, you know, Mark went out and did the right thing and hit somebody because that's, you know, whether you're unsure if it was on purpose or this or that, that's a teammate sticking up to you. And more than that, the, 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 the I think it was Dyer that got hit for them. 
he just took it, went to first, didn't say anything, didn't look at anything because he knew, because he knows the game that it's coming. But then on top of all that, the umpires that were involved let it all happen and let everybody police it all. So it was kind of like everything was, you know, done right by everybody involved, and it was kind of nice to see, you know. Yeah, I'd have to say my favorite moment wasn't actually a, a baseball uh, moment, but I was at your final game. Um, you made a really heartwarming tribute video that got everybody emotional in the stadium. It was emotional for us, and I can only imagine how emotional it was for you on that day. How did you keep it all together um, on that final day in the majors? Yeah, I mean, it was uh... – the hardest thing was just, like, again, just by habit, knowing that you have to play. And so I was always big on my routines, always big on just my mental preparation and all that kind of stuff. And those last weeks got really tough just in terms of, like, doing a lot of different things. And But I still felt like, you know, I want to go out and kind of perform and, you know, maybe do well in one of these games. And um, that was probably the hardest point. I mean, and just I just was trying to, you know, get to the other side of it. I, I It was awesome. They treated me, I mean, obviously as a player, you never think that you're going to be one of those players at the end in terms of, you know, having your number retired or having a statue and that stuff. And even at the beginning of the year when I kind of knew, okay, there probably will be something going on at the end of the year. I don't think I ever envisioned the White Sox and the organization kind of going to the extent they did. So it was kind of all that coming down in the last week. And, but again, still having to go out and like play, you know, and so it was balancing those two things. Uh, were was difficult and uh but I kind of right towards the last few games was just like okay the hell with playing like I gotta kind of enjoy this and kind of also take it in and also kind of deliver on that side of it because my my nature would have been don't show anything and don't you know don't give no give no time or effort to any of this other stuff because it's not between the lines but I kind of had at that point finally like you know let up and look up and kind of say okay I'm gonna I have to enjoy this. This is like, this is, they're doing this all for me and it's awesome. And I can't, you know, I got to kind of buy into this. So it was, it was definitely difficult. I was so tired at the end of it all, like the next day when the season was over, like I was, it, it literally took me uh, probably a year to two to kind of almost decompress from it all because wow. the buildup of the last couple of years, I don't think I watched any baseball. I don't think I watched, <laughs> I didn't do anything really baseball related or anything like that for a good two years. Um, I was just so burned out on everything. And now, you know, I kind of can feel myself watching more, kind of paying attention to what's going on in the league. And, but for a while, I just was like, I had, it was, just, it was so awesome, but it was like, I need to get away, you know? Well, Paul, it was a hell of a career. And Simon and I really enjoyed revisiting it with you during this podcast. We really appreciated you taking the time with us today. We know we went a little over, but we really enjoyed talking to you today. Yeah, I appreciate it, fellas. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Baseball Never Sleeps podcast. This weekend, we have Seattle Mariners TV play-by-play broadcaster Dave Sims joining Simon and me for a very entertaining interview. Make sure to tune in.